This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dojo Live. This is Tulio Sugusa from Southern California. Broadcasting along with me is Kim Lantis in Hermosillo, Mexico. And today we have our special guest. Uh, why not seeing everybody? <laughs> we have our guest, uh, Sandra, who's our head of our design uh, team and joining us as well. You're in Hermosillo as well, Sandra? Yes. Here Excellent. in the desert. <laughs> Everyone's in the house today. And of course, we have our guest, Alejandro Rivas, who's the founder and CEO of Userlytics. And we're going to talk about everything user experience today, but a little more than that. But before we go and dig in and get to uh, the topic of today's conversation, let's get to know our guest. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show again, Alejandro. Please, if you could introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you, and then... Uh, We'll dig in and see what Userlytics is all about. Well, thank you, Tulio, and uh, thank you all for having me on the show. Um, briefly about myself, um, I guess what is known as a serial entrepreneur, so that translated to me at least means that there have been some successful exits and there have been some learning experiences along the way. Uh Born in San Francisco um, a long time ago, but uh, uh, I lost my hair at a very early age. So I'm, I'm, I, I went through all that process uh, a long time ago. Um, nuclear engineer originally, uh, and uh, I've lived and worked in many different countries around the world, Japan, France, uh, all over the United States. Spain, uh, and I started companies in those three continents. And uh, the last company I started uh, is Userlytics, uh, a remote user experience testing platform. What an interesting background. Love to get a perspective, a global perspective on things. Uh, so tell us about Userlytics. What was that aha moment that made you decide to create this company? And what is it that you guys do today? Sure. Um, Userlytics is about user experience optimization. And uh, you or your uh, listeners might ask, you know, why is that important? Um, what we have found is that you can invest money in marketing in a business. You can invest in operations. You can invest in product, in research and development. But... One of the highest, if not the highest, returns on investment is user experience. It trumps everything else. And if you look as an example, Zoom, well-known company, enters a market that was enormously crowded 13 years after that market was created, already full of incumbents. And yet Zoom owns its market. Why? Slightly better user experience, not even a step change, just slightly better user experience. That's just one example of how impactful and important user experience is. And, and our company is, is uh, I'm 
very fortunate to be able to say, one of the global leaders in user experience testing. Excellent. All right. Well, let's see what we can learn today. There's a lot to unpack. If you could please introduce the topic and the how that we're going to look to understand today. Kim would be appreciated. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, Tulio, Sandra, and Alejandro for, for being here today. Alejandro, the topic of conversation that you chose is startup and scale-up culture in a 100% remote environment. And we're specifically talking about scaling uh, a business, man how to manage employees, clientele, and a global participant panel in a post-COVID world. So what I really am interested about is this idea of a 100% remote environment. Are you convinced, Alejandro, that this is the absolute way of the future? It's a great question. And I think uh, anywhere you look now, whether it's large entities on Wall Street like Goldman Sachs or large tech, tech firms in Silicon Valley like Apple or uh, smaller, uh, not yet giants, but getting there like Userlytics, um, this question is top of mind. How do we deal with the new world? Everything changed after the pandemic. And those that think that we're going back to the old world, I think are gravely mistaken. However, the new world is as yet undefined. What does it mean? Does it mean that we're gonna have a hybrid working environment where Tuesdays and Thursdays or Tuesdays and Wednesdays or whatever it is, we go into the office and the, other, the rest of the days we don't? Many companies have adopted that approach. I, I personally don't believe in it. Um, are we going to go into a mode where it's 100% remote, end of story, that's it? You know, there are some companies that even before the pandemic, uh, one that comes to mind is Hotjar. It's a, somewhat related to our space, a little bit tangential, uh, but very successful company. Uh, they were remote from day one, and, and they were all they all started on an island in the Mediterranean. So it's not like they had a difficulty to commute to work. You know, it was just a stone's throw away. They could have done it easily, but they decided from day one, no, we're going to be remote from day one. And I'm talking about years before the pandemic. It worked for them. However, I don't subscribe to the view that that is the future. I think it can work for some companies, some corporate mm -hmm. cultures. Difficult one. Um, I can tell you what we're doing. What we have come up with is a model where we have two offices right now, one in uh, Europe, in Madrid, Spain, one in Miami, U.S., and uh, many of our employees live near those offices, and they're free to go into the office if they want to, not go into the office if they don't want to, uh, or, or some days yes, some days no, completely up to that. Others do not live or work near those locations and post pandemic, if you will, that brings certain advantages to us. When we're looking for talent, we can say, you know what? This is a great person. He lives in Canada. No problem. She lives in Colombia. No problem. He lives in Taiwan. She lives in the Philippines. He lives in Portugal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can bring all these people in. He lives in South Africa. And by the way, all those examples are real. Uh, <laughs> Our, our areas where we have employees currently. Now, cool. we 
we decided there is some benefit, huge benefit actually, to having in-person, face-to-face interaction. So how do you garnish that? How do you get that benefit? But at the same time, leverage the huge benefit of not forcing employees to spend two hours of their life every day going back and forth to work. So what we came up with was, okay, when you work for Usalytics, yes, you can decide when and if you're going to go to the office, but occasionally we will ask you to come for a group get-together. It could be regional. Last November, we had a North American get-together. It could be departmental. A few weeks ago, we had a tech team get-together in Madrid, or it can be a global get-together. At the end of May, early June, we're having a global get together of every employee for one week in Madrid, Spain. And we've seen that model so far work well for us, but I'd be lying to you if I could predict, you know, that's going to be the future. It's, it's our best mm-hmm. guess, um, our two cents, if you will. Thank you. So Alejandro, just curious, I'm listening here and I'm wondering if we look at the shifts in uh, industrial revolution, to the information age, uh, to the gig economy. That's kind of where we are right now, right? So it appears as though we are still stuck in the methodology of the Industrial Revolution. Everybody shows up at the office, punch the clock, you know, that kind of uh, setup and mindset. And yet we've had two, two significant shifts since, there, since then, especially knowledge workers. What's the point of going in, clocking in? You have all the technology at your fingertip. Do you think that the pandemic has sort of been the catalyst to finally wake up and say, you know what, we've been stuck in a system of doing things that really doesn't even apply in how we do things today? And and uh, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you get people to begin to realize to let go of the past that didn't exactly serve them in this new reality, especially for knowledge workers? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I, I, I remember hearing a, a funny comment about it during the pandemic in the first few months that said the pandemic just uh, launched us on a rocket ship into the future, you know, as is to say that we were going at this rate little by little going into the future. And then all of a sudden we went, you know, step change into it. And, and I think that's, that's very true. Um, now, there are those who are trying to, as we say in Spanish, put a door in the field. In other words, they're trying to stop what is an unstoppable force. Uh, you know, there are some investment banks in New York that have struck, no, 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 we got to bring everybody back into the office. And you think, who are the people pushing for that? Well, it's, you know, the CEO and, and other very top level executives who have a nice house on the Upper East Side. It's not a problem for them to commute to work. So they don't see the issues. Uh, but it's just not going to happen. And why is that? Because if they institute those kind of policies, and by the way, there's certain giants in Silicon Valley who have also had the same kind of uh, mindset um companies like us are going to be able to get people that say you know what i enjoy working for this company where there's more flexibility and a culture that is more trusting 
of the employees than for some of these other giant behemoths, regardless of their brand name or even their compensation. And that's the market working. And the market ultimately will force those large companies. They're all complaining about employee churn, the great resignation, all that stuff. So far, knock on wood, we haven't seen that. Uh, and I suspect that other companies that have a similar cultural approach as ours are also not seeing that. And and I, we're seeing a, a paradigm shift. It's going to take years, perhaps even decades, to fully for all of us to really understand all these changes, but, but it's big and it's, it's happening right now. Yeah. Alejandro, I, it really resonates with me what you were saying, because we definitely changed as a, as a human being uh, before and after the pandemic. But I also see these changes on how we interact with different softwares. Have you identified any pattern or changes from the user perspective or what will be your, your advice for all of these people that have different products and they are having changes, but don't link them to the way users change as well. Mm. Well, um, the user is definitely something that is fundamental to look at. And if you look at the typical organization of any large department, you know, they've got marketing, they've got, uh, you know, if they're in the software field, a, a development area, they've got a QA area, all these things. But only in the past few years have they started to really build up and empower the user research team, the user experience team. I think an analogy here is interesting. If you go into a restaurant and you don't like the food so much or you don't like the ambience so much or something about the waiter pisses you off, it's going to take you a lot of discomfort to leave because you're already sitting down there. You know, getting up in the middle of the meal, ah, let's just finish the meal. We won't come back, but we'll finish the meal. If you're visiting a website or a mobile app and you don't like anything at all, in two milliseconds, you're gone. And that is a huge difference. And one of the things that the pandemic has done is that it's made organizations really accelerate their digital transformation. Um, and so they have to take into account the user and everything they do. And by the way, uh, when we talk about the user, another analogy that I think is worth thinking about is imagine that you send 10 people to cross a room. And of those 10, one person trips on a fold in the rug. Now, one way to look at that is great. 90% had no problem. We're doing great. Another way to look at it is to say, let's remove that fold in the rug, because if we do so, the other nine people, the next time they cross the room, even if it was because of luck or instinct or, or something else, they will feel a better experience. And that's what you know, user-centered experience optimization is all about. I, I don't know if I answered your question, but uh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely did. Yeah, I, I liked it. Well, I think it, I always appreciate when we're able to take tech and thought and make it much more tangible. Like, what you said earlier at the show, using Zoom as your example. And I think that when a company is able to become the noun or even become a verb 
it, they've really arrived, right? So when we think of video conferencing, we say, I'll Zoom you, even if we're using some other platform, right? Or if you're going to buy window cleaner, it's Windex, regardless of, of what brand it is, right? So, right? so what do you see in that example or any example of those minor tweaks that make all the difference? And how are companies able to discover that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it would be difficult for me to generalize because it's it's so particular to each kind of journey. Uh, you know, I, I think if you want to think of a bad user experience, call any interactive voice response, audio text-based technology, like, you know, your bank, you want to talk talk to a human being and they put you first on an IVR system and you got to answer questions. And some of the questions, you know, they don't really grasp what your issue is. So none of the answers are good. So you, you end up, you know, getting quite frustrated and quite angry. Uh, that That's an example of a bad user experience. But then how do you define a good user experience? A good user experience in a sense is almost making the interface invisible to the user they don't notice it it's not an obstacle it's out of their way there's their themselves their goals what they want to achieve and there's nothing in between so you know sometimes when new user interfaces are developed uh the designers who tend to be people who are you know very artistically inclined and you know hugely um uh, talented people um work with the product managers who likewise, you know, they're thinking about all these cool things we could do. And the end result is lots of stuff, lots of noise, lots of things on the page. And if you think about Google in its first iteration, when it first came out, you know, back in the day, um, at that time, it's competitors, again, a crowded market when they got in there, uh, you know, entities like Yahoo, etc. very crowded pages. And if you recall, Google at that time launched and it was just a white page with a search box. That was it. Nothing else. It was simple, but enormously usable. Uh, so it's hard for me to answer this question well in terms of, you know, what works as a user experience, because it's always going to depend upon the context, what you're trying to achieve, where you're going, etc. But you, it's kind of like. You'll know it when you see it or when you experience it, right? And I, I can give you another example of a absolutely stunning user experience. In the United Kingdom, when you want to create a new company, there's, a, there's an organization, it's a governmental organization called Company House. And you set up your new company there and you, you file your annual reports there, et cetera, et cetera. Well, typically... Governmental entities are not great at designing great user experiences. That's a generalization, but it's largely true. However, one of the best, if not the best user experience I've ever had in my life was going through the company house uh, website. Absolutely fabulous user experience. I don't know how they did it. I would like to say they were my client. Unfortunately, I cannot make that claim. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I would love to have them as a reference because it's absolutely incredible, their user experience. So, again, you know, you you know it when you feel it, you know, we, you see it, you experience it. But it's hard to say 
well, you got to do this, you got to do that. There are little rules here and there, but it all depends on the context. So, Alejandro, let's let's talk a little bit about maybe there are some. Uh, uh, I don't know if we want to call them red flags or or uh, levers that would indicate that a company needs to relook at their user experience. I mean, we think uh, Kim made a really interesting point about companies that are synonymous with certain things. Uh, uh, Xerox used to be synonymous with making a copy, but not anymore. They, their, they, their lunch was eaten by the bubble jet printer, right? So they didn't, they failed to keep up with that shift in the marketplace, which was predominantly driven by people working from home. Interestingly enough, right? I want to have a I could get a Canon bubble jet printer. I don't need to spend twenty, you know, $2,500 on a Xerox laser printer. So this was an example of a comp company that was dominant in this space, but yet failed to keep up with the trends and meeting the users where they are. You know, you talk about invisible, being invisible. To me, it sounds like meeting the user where they are, right? So what are some of the things that companies need to be looking out for that's an indication that perhaps someone's out to eat their lunch? It's a great question. So, because it's very important, the, the end result, as you know, you pointed out an example, and there are others out there. There's Kodak, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of examples out there. Um, so, when we work in a company, we tend to focus on the immediate, you know, my market share, my bottom line. Uh, this particular product, uh, how many complaints are coming in the door, etc. And what we do, in part, we help companies with that phase of their work. So, uh, hey, Userlytics, um, I'm losing a ton of users in my marketing funnel at this stage of the purchase process. I don't know why. I just know that we're using a we're we're losing a lot of them at this stage. So we help run some tests for them and find out why. That's part of what we do, but we always encourage companies to do something additional, which goes to your point, which is doing what we call exploratory research. Because one type of research is just finding, okay, this is the existing process. This is what's happening. This is what's going wrong. This is why, et cetera. But exploratory research is taking a step back and saying, okay, my customer needs to do xyz that's their goal let's talk to them and ask them about that goal and ask them how they satisfy their goal because out of that conversation where we're not asking them to look at anything specific we don't have a predefined survey in mind we're just asking tell us about your day-to-day for example tell us about what concerns you when you wake up in the morning what what worries you what, what are you trying to solve? And, and out of those conversations, which are completely open-ended conversations, all of a sudden, we may see emerge insights into, oh, my God, these people, they're starting to look for, um, you know, capabilities that I never thought of. Let, let me give you an example. Imagine that you're a Nokia phone manufacturer in the early 2000s and you're doing this kind of research with with your users and you're thinking of telephony you're thinking of mobile phone quality you're thinking about calls and you ask people not necessarily nokia users just 
phone users. So, you know, how do you use your phone? What do you do with your phone? Oh, well, I take photos, I take selfies, I take photos, I take selfies, I take movies, I take selfies. I... And all of a sudden, wait a second, wait a second. They don't want a phone, they want a camera that makes phone calls occasionally. And that changes your mindset. And all of a sudden, you may redesign everything about, you know, your product goals, your company strategy, and everything that goes with it. That kind of insight is either something that happens to you by luck or by doing this kind of exploratory research, open-ended questions, trying to, to get to the bottom of what people want, why they want it, how they're achieving their goals. And that's very important because how people achieve their goals frequently involves a hack. People are hacking existing processes, tools, toys, etc., to achieve their desired outcomes. If you okay. discover a hack that is related to your product and services, then you can say, wait a second, I can make that hack disappear and give them a, a solution that's defined yeah. for that goal they're trying to achieve. I don't know if that answered your question. Excuse me for extending myself here a little bit. No, it, it completely does. And I think it really helps this that big piece of the puzzle. But I want to take it back to the title of the show. And that's how do we scale it? So I think that's something that's very interesting, right? How, how can we take that key essence, that necessity, and scale it? Great question, because that involves both organizational structure and organizational culture and top C-suite empowerment. So most organization structures are not set up for this kind of thing. For them, they have the old mindset of market research is this little box that we do occasionally. Once every three or six months, we have a meeting, we do that. It's not embedded into an agile, continuous, iterative testing, check it out, uh, tweak, fix, do it again, etc. process. So that's organizational structure. And, and part of the answer to your question is you have to change. I mean, like what we've done from a structure perspective is unite the developers and the designers in single teams, even though they report to different units. And But there's a lot more to it than that. Um, so part of it is that. Part of it is culture. G let me give you another analogy. I'm sorry I'm throwing a lot of analogies at you guys today. But uh, imagine life before the invention of the toothbrush. Okay? You're going through life. You're eating a lot. I'd rather not. Eating... <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> but uh, all of a sudden, your teeth start hurting. You have to go to a dentist, the dentist technology of that day, you know, pull a string, pull it out. Okay, fixed. On to the next thing. Now, in a sense, a usability lab, as envisaged, say, 10 years ago, was exactly that. It was something you did occasionally. You would bring people into a in-person facility, check out the usability, and then try to fix it from there. With our kinds of technology, you can do this every day or every week or every month, but iteratively and continuously, not at the same level of detail and depth that you could do in a, in a lab environment. So not in the same way that you would do in a dentist, but in the same way that you would brush your teeth. Now, here's the thing. If you grew up as a kid brushing your teeth and with your parents telling you every day to brush your teeth, you do that automatically when you're an adult. But what happens if the toothbrush is in, invented when you're 30? You really have to culturalize yourself to, oh, I got to do this every day and, and get used to it. So that's a cultural change. 
And the third element is CEO empowerment. This, this has to come from above. One of the things we saw in our particular market is that around 2015, our market exploded. Why did it explode? Because at that time, the CEOs of the day, in, at least in the US and UK, were waking up and saying, reading the newspaper, Slack, worth billions of dollars. Hey, what's this Slack thing? Oh, it's a, it's a messaging app. A messaging app? Billions of dollars? Yeah, but it has a great user experience. Ah, what are we doing about user experience? And it was like this mindset change that occurred at the top level. And all of a sudden, the number of user experience researchers in organizations went from 2 to 20 to 200. Budgets increased, visibility increased, empowerment increased, etc. Sorry, and uh, again, I've extended myself uh, a little bit too much there in my answer. No, we, we like how you think. I mean, this uh, everything you've talked about is uh, I'm a big proponent of design thinking. And I mean, it just par for the course, right? All cultural design, alignment, all these things are critically important to making it all happen. Uh, and it's continuous, as you said. So uh, let's shift a little bit. We're running out of time. We're practically up on time. We, we wouldn't uh, want to miss out getting to know a little bit the uh, user analytic, user analytics uh, culture. If you could um, describe for us, what's the day in the life there? You know, we have a lot of listeners and um, audience members who are interested in learning about unique companies. Uh, if you could just share that with us, what's the day in the life uh, at user analytics? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I, I must say that uh, of, of the organizations that I've had the pleasure to, to lead over time, this is the one that I feel most happy and, and proud of, uh, and specifically because of that, because of the culture. It's with the exception of myself, it's a very young team, and there's a lot of energy. It's a very diverse team in terms of everything. And it's, uh, we, we have certain values in terms of being polite to each other, being polite to our customers, to our suppliers, to everybody that we deal with. So politeness is a key value, professionalism. Uh, we're working very much as teams. It's, it's, um, it's interesting because, you know, when the pandemic occurred, everybody – myself included, was worried about, okay, everybody working remotely, uh, you know, maybe people are going to be surfing all day long or, or doing this or doing that. And it turned out that, you know, yes, people did sometimes take time off from their day to do things that were important to them from a personal perspective. But then they would make up for that and more than make up for it in terms of hours uh, that are not the traditional, you know, eight to five uh, working for us. So, uh, I, I'd say to answer your question, it's a very fluid, uh, very collegial and congenial uh, atmosphere, uh, very exciting because, you know, we're growing 70, 80 percent per year. So that, that we're, we're very fortunate in that sense. You know, we're, we're, we're in a market that's exploding. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 a very happy place to work. I, I, a significant number of employees have received. I know, as a matter of fact, offers of significantly higher compensation than what they receive with us. And they haven't taken it because they just enjoy working here. And that, for me, is the 
best takeaway I could have. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm responsible for it. We all are collectively, but I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of that. Very awesome. Well, thank you for being a part of our dojo live show today, Alejandro. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our half an hour. Sandra, thank you for joining us as well and your input with UI, UX, and Tuvio as ever. Uh, this is our final show of the week, just one show this week. But you can, of course, catch us every Monday at 12 o'clock Pacific at Dojo Live to discuss our recap. We'll be talking about Alejandro's show, our takeaways of it and introducing you to next week's shows as well. So say, stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much Thank for you. having me, Kim, Tulio, Sandra. Great chatting with you. Thanks to yeah. your audience. Take Thank care. Thank you. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com dot com.